Lance Mackey, four-time champion in both the Iditarod and Yukon Quest, with one of the most incredible comebacks in dog mushing history. I chose to be out in this race. I know it's going to be dark. I know it's going to be cold. I know I'm going to be hungry. I know I'm not going to get any sleep. The son of the Iditarod race's founder, Mackey went from a long battle with addiction. You were earning $100,000 a year annually, but then blowing it all on drugs, alcohol, and prostitutes. It's pretty accurate. To a late stage cancer diagnosis, which doctors said would end his career, if not his life. So basically they pulled a softball sized tumor out of my throat. <clears> the <throat> softball sized tumor mm -hmm. out of your this throat. This is how he described it. But he came back to competition and in 2007, won both the Yukon Quest and the Iditarod, a feat thought to be impossible. I just wanted to tell the people, all the doubters, like, in your face, look at this, you know? Mackey shares the dangers of these thousand mile races through the Alaskan wilderness, lasting well over a week, with wind chills as extreme as 100 below zero. I just rocked back and forth. Oh, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna die out here. I'm just gonna freeze to death. I gotta keep moving. We sat down in 2014 and began with the early years he spent away from the dog racing world and the lifestyle that nearly killed him. All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I was gonna start off by talking to you about like your uh, racing mentality and all, all that sort of stuff, then get into uh, cancer and notable races and just kind of go from there if that works. All familiar stuff. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. How about the coldest weather you've ever been in when you've been out racing the dogs? I was in the Yukon Quest in, um, it, was, <clears throat> it was 2008 or nine. Uh, it was 70 below zero on this place called Birch Creek that was without the wind. 70 below 70 zero. 70 below zero. I, I have a, I mean, just about everybody on, uh, on the race normally has a thermometer on their sled because of different reasons. The, the plastics that we use slide different on different uh, uh, temperatures of snow. Um, the, the plastics that you use on the sled? On the sled, yeah. Okay. The, the foods that we feed, when it's that cold, you want more fat. When it's warm, you want more liquids. Okay. Things of that nature. <laughs> I can honestly say I've never been so miserable on a dog sled. Um, I got to a certain... I got to a certain spot, and uh, I was going to take a break for six hours. I couldn't get a, I couldn't get a fire built. Uh, it was just brutal cold. So uh, I had all my gear on, everything I had, and this is stuff that keeps anybody warm, you know, and I'm, right. I'm still kind of cold. I got a sleeping bag that uh, I can normally, in my underwear, sleep in the snowbank at 50 below and be fine. Yeah. I took my... Uh, Took my sleeping bag where your feet go and I draped it over my head. And I sat on the front of my sled. It's like a park or a tent now. And I just rocked back and forth. Oh, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to die out here. I'm just going to freeze to death. I got to keep moving. So I'd get up and I'd walk up and down. And dogs got, you know, they're curled up in a little ball like this. They got their nose and their tail and they're sound asleep. The dogs are fine. The dogs are fine, absolutely. They got dog coats on them and a um, bed of straw and whatnot. And in about four hours, I'm like, I can't sit here any longer. I'm, I'm, I'm literally, I'm not going to make it. You know, that's how I feel. Oh, you, you really I, felt I, that? I feel okay. that I'm going to, if I sit still, if I go to sleep, I won't wake up. Wow. I'm that cold. There's no, there's nothing else. I can't get a fire going. Um, 
you know, I'm like, okay, guys, I'm sorry. And I talk to my dogs like I do anybody, you know. I tell them what we're going to do. I tell them if they're having a good day or a bad day, whatever. And, I, and I'm, I'm like, guys, I'm miserable. I know you deserve longer. I, I'm going to ask you just dig deep, you know. We got to get to we got to get to somewhere where we can all warm up, get a good meal. You guys uh, into it? My leader looks up, you know, and he's like, whatever you want, Dad, you know. What does 70 below feel like? Like you're having your skin ripped off, uh, you know, without any numbness. It's, 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 you don't expose any skin for more than about five seconds. And it, it blisters, it turns white. I mean, my cheeks, my end of my nose, my fingers, all of these things are pretty well shot because of this sport and that one race. <laughs> and that one race in particular? That particular, no, a lot of that race, but uh, uh, that race in general. Okay. I, ran, I ran it uh, six or seven times, and every single time something comes out of it. Um, how, how severe is the sleep deprivation? See, again, a lot of people, you know, they're out there seeing pink elephants and stuff on the trail. Me, I, 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 again, I think part of my strength is not, being, I don't have to sleep much. The, um, and what's the longest you've gone for without sleep? On a race, uh, I think about three days, but not... Three days with no sleep? No. But a lot of people don't understand how you do that. It's real how easy. How do you do that? It's easy. Most people get tired. They don't want to drink anything. They don't want to eat anything. They just want to go to sleep. You constantly eat a little bit. It keeps your energy up. keeps your... People hallucinate because they can't... Uh, they don't have enough liquid or, or, or uh, food. At 40 below, it's really hard to take your glove off and open up a candy wrapper or whatever, you know? Me, I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. I make all my stuff in, in advance to where I don't have to take my gloves off. I can put something in my mouth. If you're chewing on something, you're probably not falling asleep, you know? If you're hydrated, you have, I mean, you don't, it's just how it is. You don't hallucinate. I hear voices because it's the wind and you got your hood up and stuff like that. I hear voices and... Dwayne, you're hallucinating. You've been awake for three days. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it's not like... It's not like most people, like said, you know, I'm, you're seeing pink elephants stand alongside the trail. Yeah, I have. Not that exact thing, but I've seen, you know, I've seen a lady sitting beside the trail, set of footprints coming out of the, the trees, and she's sitting Indian-style next to the trail. She didn't have a face. And I, you know, I seen it, and I turned, and hey, she was gone. You know, but when I first saw her, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm getting close to something. You know, I've, well, that was weird, you know. Start drinking a little bit. How does your body feel as you're staying awake longer and longer? You're just a walking zombie, basically. You don't even have to think anymore at this point. You're, everything you do is routine. You're just making the motions. How much of a mental toll does it take on your body? I, um, I spent better part of 12, uh, 13 years in the Bering Sea as a king crab fisherman, long line. And uh, that set me up mentally for anything that ever comes my way. You spend, uh, you spend a month or even a week on a, on a small boat with six guys in all these rough seas, and it didn't just come naturally. I had to, I had to build it, basically. But it was um, what I feel was one of the main strengths that I got out of fishing went to my racing mentality. I chose to be out in this race. I know it's going to be dark. I know it's going to be cold. I know I'm going to be hungry. I know I'm not going to get any sleep. So 
I, I'm, I'm not the guy normally that's all down and depressed and complaining about the cold weather or whatever uh, negative things seem to happen. Two, my dogs feed off of me. If I'm having a bad day, I still got a smile on my face and I'm pretending. So now I'm an actor as well, you know? I don't want them to think that this is something that they should be bummed about. You know, uh, it is not all glamorous. There is going to be downs. And you'll have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Uh, I don't want to see those lowest of lows. So that's part of my training. We put them through everything in training that I expect to see on the race. And then I, you know, what ifs, the unexpected. So I always expect the worst and hope for the best. To tell about the sleeping tactics that resulted in your 2008 Iditarod win over the four-time champion Jeff King. Yeah, that's a um, pretty famous story, actually. And it's an old school move that uh, is not how, it's not in the rules. You, there's nothing saying you can't do things like that. What it was basically is um, him toying with me for, for several days, having the faster team. Uh, I was in the front, and he, and he was just trailing me. And uh, we got to a place called Koyuk. <clears throat> I took off all my gear and I stuck it in front of the uh, uh, Toyo stove. He fell asleep with his feet on my boots. So then when I took my boots, he would wake up. And I started thinking, that's pretty, that's smooth, you know? Good move. Now I've got 48 miles to come up my own move. <laughs> and that's all I did. I figured out at, at that moment that no matter what I did, he was going to do the same thing. He had the faster team, so he's just going to basically trail me till we got to the front street of Nome, and he'd go running by me and kind of, you know, show me up or whatever. Well, I'm not one to give in or, you know, concede it to him right at this point. Uh, it was pretty obvious he was going to beat me, but I ain't going down without a fight. I figure if I get to, to Elam and my dogs are bedded down, he's going to stay. If not, well, big deal. Okay. Um... I don't know how this is all going to work. It's just things I'm thinking through in my head. If I, uh, if I hurry up and get my, my cooker going and, and make it look like I'm staying there for a while, he's, probably, he's going to do the same. So I did exactly that. I, I rolled in there. I got my dogs bedded down. I had my cooker going. And, uh, and it was only in a matter of five minutes before he rolled in. And, and I'll never forget because he's right. I mean, the little checkpoint. Uh, the checker says, are you staying or going? And he said, only if he's going. Are, are you staying? And, and he kind of turned and looked. He's like, yep, I'm staying. So I figured uh, I'm going to go in. I'm going to get all of my stuff off. Like, I'm staying for a while. And I did. I had a one-piece suit at the time. I stripped down to my long underwear. Normally, I don't really take anything off. I just kind of catnap. And, uh, I took everything off. So I had the table, and I had three big cups of coffee. I don't drink coffee. So he comes in, and he's still got all his stuff on. Uh, again, I drink about that, that third cup of coffee. And he lays over by the front door. And now this door is, it's needed oil for about 40 years now. It's right by the front. Uh, it's, um, it's right where uh, you have to go by. Cold air rushes in, and he was laying right there with all of his stuff on. So, so is that the only way you could get out was One to way. go through him? Ah, I got it. So I went and laid down. He went and laid down over here. And about the time my head hit the little pillow, 
I could hear him snoring. I just got a few seconds and I got up. And uh, again, I'd been there for about an hour. Dogs were curled up. They, you know, we'd been racing hard. I'm like, guys, let's go. And they all stood up and they kind of, oh, dad, what are you doing? You know, we got around the corner there a little bit and uh, off in the darkness we went. And for over an hour, I literally rode backwards on my sled. I mean, I know they're, you know, they know where they're going. There's one trail. I rode backwards and I just kept watching the place where we went off the bank onto the, onto the ocean. And, uh, you know, it's getting longer and longer. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know if he's got his headlight off and he's about to pass me. Because uh, kind of things happen all the time. We get to White Mountain and uh, he was 53 minutes behind me. I don't know at this point, I mean, you know, if I can pull it up, but everybody's talking about it up and down trail, you know. He was not impressed. He was not happy. He was not friendly about it. And he still gets asked about it today, and it's, it's pretty embarrassing for him. But my, my, um, my personal opinion is, even if we had left White Mountain exactly the same time together, I would have still beat him. I ended up gaining 20 minutes on him on the last, uh, on the last leg, so... I've heard um, you have pretty impressive eating habits. Um, you wouldn't what, what know you, it by looking at me. But well, you, yeah, you're just telling me you've lost mm-hmm. 15 pounds. Mm-hmm. But what, what do you eat during an average sitting generally? Oh, I can eat a well. You know, for breakfast I eat about half a loaf of bread and a whole box of cereal in one setting. Uh, a, a, a big box of cereal. Yeah, big box of cereal, one setting, no problem. My mom used to think it was. Uh, you know, I mean, she thought it was impressive at, you know, 14 or 15 that I eat a half a box of cereal when I got up in the morning before school. Well, because she said you would literally make yourself, when I was talking to your mom, she said you'd make yourself a dozen eggs with bacon, ham, sausage in it. You'd eat that, and then you'd have a big bowl of cereal after Absolutely. that. Yeah, I have a metabolism like no other. I mean, most people eat like I do, they'd be 400 pounds. I'm on the move all the time, you know, uh. Lately, I haven't been eating too much because, um, you know, some issues here. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's nothing to have a full breakfast. If I went to breakfast at that truck stop, I would eat the full breakfast. Then I'd have a piece of pie. Then I'd probably have, um, oh, hard to say, maybe a, maybe a BLT sandwich. Then i have a milkshake. And, you know, and you're sitting there trying to finish your one meal. I eat all the time. And so I feel that uh, I've, I've taught myself how to eat, you know? I mean, it's not like little portions. I eat big portions. I mean, I, I a lot of it. So, and that's been since I was a little kid. And you just eat quickly. You aren't sitting there for like I used to really eat real extended quick. periods yeah. of time. I, uh, no, well, now I have to kind of take my time. I don't have saliva, so it's a little bit harder and I take, you know, it takes a while to chew and whatnot. But uh, I can consume even more because I'm going slower. <laughs> I'd make a really, really good sled dog. I'm sure you would. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 2001 I did ride, you end up finishing 36th out of 68 teams. Uh, explain how you're feeling as you're finishing that race. Well, the, you know, just being able to get to the starting line was a dream come true for one. So I wasn't feeling too good leading up to the race, but I had been, you know, I went to a doctor and they told me I had an abscessed tooth and gave me a bottle of antibiotics and you know, sent me on my way. And that's, in my head, I had an abscessed tooth. Big deal. Uh, I got through the bottle of antibiotics and still had this oh, terrible thing in my neck. And 
and it started to hurt. And I'll never forget the day that it really dawned on me that something was going on. I picked up a newspaper and like, what? I need glasses too? It's all blurry. I can't read. I'm like, what is going on? Ah, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd wake up in the middle of the night. I need some aspirin. I need something. My head is just throbbing, you know. And and I'm, I don't take aspirin. I don't take ibuprofen. I don't do that, you know. But now I'm waking up in the middle of the night begging for it. And, um, I didn't want to admit that maybe something else was happening. Uh, so I went to the start and I did ride and uh, probably with no sleep and the, you know, the rigorousness of the trail and whatnot, things somewhat progressed rapidly. And uh, by the time I got to Nome, I was blacking out for no reason. Uh, and I was Nome just, being uh, where it finishes, yeah. Yeah, Nome's fish line. Yeah, I got to Nome and uh, the very first thing I told my wife at the time was, uh, I need to see a doctor. And she uh, she just broke down crying. She knew now something's up. Because for me, to, I mean, I want to go see a doctor. Something's up, you know. And uh, when I went and saw the doctor that day, um, he says, uh, he did some tests and whatnot. And he says, uh, you need to go to Anchorage immediately. And you need to see a specialist. He said, this is beyond me. And both of us right away uh, well, could it be cancer? He's like, no, it's not cancer, but something's going on in there. Okay, well, fine. I'm good then, right? I'm here to tell you, that's BS. <laughs> I touched my neck. And, oh, man, what is up? You know. So basically, they pulled a softball-sized tumor out of my throat. A <clears throat> uh, softball-sized tumor mm-hmm. out of your throat? This is how he described it. Yeah. It had wrapped around the... I mean, it basically... I was cutting circulation off to my brain. That's why I was having the headaches. Uh, they took the main muscle out of my right arm, and that's all the mobility I have in my arm and my neck. I got a main artery right here. This is um, this is pretty bad. My neck only goes so far. They told me uh, flat out that I wasn't going to make it to this whole ordeal. They caught it in the late stages, uh, and they had a big powwow with different uh, doctors and whatnot, and um, they decided, sure, we'll make an attempt at it, and, um, you know, they, I got my whole family together, and, uh, you know, I was really positive about the whole thing until the moment they opened the doors and wheeled me in for surgery, and I'll never forget the lady, uh, anesthesiologist says, uh, you need to tell your family goodbye. And I'm like, you know, I have been told I can't do something my whole life. I said, I'll see you guys later, you know? And I, and I went in pissed off. Tell me what I can and can't do. I'm like, you know, watch this. So I, um, you know, I did live through it. I went through that whole ordeal and I, I don't know exactly. I was told it was eight days when I woke up from that surgery. I woke up in the fetal position in a bed, and I, I remember just opening my eyes. And it wasn't the room. It wasn't the surrounding that I was wanting to know what was going on. It was this hose that I had in my belly, and in my, I had a catheter. I'm like, who did this? What is going on? This is not right. I don't feel right. I mean, <laughs> get me out of here, right. you know? And, uh, I, I mean, I... 
I couldn't sit up, I couldn't roll over, I couldn't do anything. I was that weak. <clears throat> you know, my family's standing right there. I remember telling them, I said, I told you I'd be back, you know. I've, I mean, I, you know, of all the things I've done and should have maybe died from, I wasn't going to let something like that be the reason. Something that I had no control over. But I do have control over it because I'm a very tough-minded guy. Explain what doctors told you could happen uh, with the now paper-thin skin that covered the right portion of your neck where the artery is. Yeah, for, for starters, they want me to wear... Uh, what you'd expect a guy with a broken neck or something to wear a big thick collar. Um, just to, to, on every day, you know, because this is this artery that sticks out here is if I get poked with a tree branch or uh, scrape it with a toenail of a dog or, or turn my head, if my right arm gets that like that over my head, it'll just blow that out. So if I tip over my sled, I got to let go of my right arm instantly because I can't have, I can't have my right arm do that, you know. They told me if I was standing in the hospital room with a team of surgeons and that happened, they couldn't save me. Okay, so in my opinion, I was lucky enough to live through it. If that happens to me, I'm going to have a smile on my face doing what I love to do. I couldn't think of a better way to go. You've said before that you believe you'll die out on the trail at some point. No, no. Why, why do you believe that? Well, I mean, that's just something that I feel um, that'd, be the, that'd be the way I want to go, for one. And if I'm feeling like it's coming that time, I'm going to hook up a team. <laughs> I might not be able to stand on the back, then I might have to put me in the basket and I'll just ride down the trail, but I'm not the guy. I, I mean, I, I would haunt you if you let me die in a hospital bed. If, if I get confined to a wheelchair, um, something like that, you know, I mean, uh, I'm just not that guy. My, I can't sit for very long, so I'd be miserable. Um, I'm, I'm not, you know, this is, this is me. This is what I choose. This is what I love. And I'm not going to do, I mean, this is the way I want to go out, you know. And be with a smile on my face with my best friends. And uh, I'll make that happen somehow or another. I'm not going to die in a hospital. I'm not going to. I'm just not, you know, I mean, accident happens and I end up in a car wreck or something. That's one thing. But if I know I'm naturally going and, you know, my friends, my family, they know that uh, that's why I want to go. I want to be buried in my dog sled. Explain why having the water bottle is necessary. Uh, the radiation treatments. I had two uh, extensive radiation treatments in my neck and it just zapped all the. Well, first off, they took the saliva glands and the taste buds and all that stuff. Uh, as well as many other things in my uh, right side of my mouth. Um, hence the, uh, the problem with the teeth at the moment. They, uh, with no saliva, you can't protect your teeth, you know. So I lost uh, right, right on the heels of the radiation and uh, the major uh, cancer surgery. I had all my top and bottom teeth removed as well. So my head was about, about this big. I couldn't eat a uh, feeding tube. Um, I have dry mouth all the time. You know, I take a salogen pill to help produce saliva. Doesn't really help, you know. I'm not into taking pills, so I have to take a thyroid pill every day. Uh, I just continue the salogen pills. This is uh, my lifeline. How long can you go without the water? A little bit more than usual lately, uh, and I say lately, in the last couple of years it's getting better. Um, I'm, I'm trying, I would say if I went an hour, 
that would be pushing it. That'd be pushing it. Yeah, I sent out about 12 cases of water on the I did arrive. I'm not dehydrated ever. It's either water, I have some kind of liquid. I, I like Gatorade. How's it impacted the taste of food to you? That's the other thing. Without saliva, you don't taste your food. So the very first thing doctors told me was when I was able to eat again, do not eat or drink the things that you love the most because it'll be discouraging. So, I mean, how, how bad could it really be, you know? I have a, a cup of chocolate pudding or a piece of cheese. Tastes the exact same. Nothing. It tasted like I was eating cardboard or something. And that just didn't, I mean, really, they were right. I mean, how, this is so weird, you know? That had to be but devastating. But I can't taste anything until I have a little sip of water. That brings out the taste. And so when you have a sip of water, you can then taste I can it, taste as well, it normally would? now I can. Okay. And, you know, for the first couple of years, uh, no, it was, it really was depressing. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I don't drink beer, but I felt like I wanted to have a beer one day. And, oh, my God, it was disgusting. I couldn't believe how bad it was. And then I had a Michelob Light, of all things, and it tasted like beer. I'm like, no, this doesn't even make sense. You, your mom was telling me that radiation effectively killed your jaw and that she, she compared it to almost a, a rotten piece of uh, sheetrock and that it just chips off. How, how true is that? Very true. Right side of my mouth right here <clears throat> for, um, oh, better part of two years anyway, was a completely exposed white jawbone. You open your mouth and look in the mirror, you can see the white in there. And really? every once in a while, I would just touch it to see if it was really, I mean, it's hard to accept that kind of thing, you know? Um, I'd touch it. Oh, that feels weird. I'm touching my jaw, Next thing I know, I'm a little piece of it, you know? I mean, it's just like flaking off. And uh, today, you can see the side of my mouth right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that main part of my jaw right here is basically um, deteriorated. It's, it's now it's grown over. It took a long time to get just a layer of skin to go over that. Now I just got done doing 30 more. Uh, this whole teeth thing's uh, the you know, next step here. But anyway, uh, many, 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 many times, you know, I'd find these little slivers in my mouth and I started saving them for a while. I thought it was kind of, I don't know. <laughs> it was kind of weird. I did. I, I saved them. And you still have them? No, I uh, finally got rid of them. It was kind of morbid, I think. But um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, like right now, I'm supposed to have permanent implants, but I say permanent. They're temporary compared to what most people would have. Each tooth has an in, uh, individual uh, post. I will have like four, and a and a one piece. Uh, because my jaw is just not solid enough to hold all of the implants. So, no. All right, well, it's the way it is, the way it is, you know. I haven't had a full set of teeth uh, since 2001. I had a bunch of little ones in the front, and they were all falling apart and breaking. You know, <clears throat> every year I'd spend thousands and thousands of dollars. But, um, you know, I guess as bad as it is, it could be a heck of a lot worse. So I don't really, you know, why dwell on it? And, I, and my, you know, my thought is I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm going to try and excel on it. And I'm going to find something 
positive that comes out of this. And, um, you know, the, the good thing is I'm still here to be able to tell you about it. And I'm, I'm not exactly um, rolling over and doing exactly what they say to do because I'm not going to sit on the couch and watch my buddies racing on TV. I'm about to do it. And I'm going to figure out the ways to make it work for me which are not the same as anybody else. The, the, the last couple of questions I had for you about this, how, how cold do your hands and feet get due to poor circulation? I'm probably sure that I buy uh, the most hand warmers that um, grabber sells a year. I, I joke about I probably paid their light bill for all their buildings last year, uh, literally 50 case um, blocks of them. I buy a whole case. Uh, I normally have three to five in my gloves at all times. Uh, my fingers have, uh, it's called Raynaud's, or something similar anyway. Sure. They just turn ghost white, they hurt. I had one removed, um, it hurts so bad. And I've had so many, I mean, broken bones and you know, just things that hurt. And I'm very tolerable to pain. I mean, I, I you know, had a fish hook when I was long line and ripped my hand out. They stuck a roll of black tape in my mouth and took a couple of sips of Japanese whiskey and sewed me up. I couldn't deal with this little tiny tip of my finger. I, I, I told the doctor that day. And that, looked, that's on the finger that got removed? Yeah, my index finger on the left hand. It looked just like this, normal. You know? But it, from the knuckle down, it hurt all the time. All the time. And I constantly, I'd be walking around and just like, man. And I didn't realize how bad it was affecting me. My attitude, my uh, everything, you know. I, somebody asked me, what? You know, I, I mean, a snap all the time. And I finally am like, you know, this is ridiculous. I don't need them all. I walked into the doctor and, uh, and I said, um, this might be kind of odd. You probably don't have too many people do this. I said, I want you to take this finger off. He kind of laughed. He's like, no, I don't see that very often, but uh, let me see that. You know, what's going on? And I told him. And he looks at it, and he's like, you know, there is no symptom there. There's no reason. Uh, I just don't, I don't think I can do it. I said, you're telling me that you don't want to take it off because it don't look right? I said, if it makes you feel any better, I'll bite the tip of it off right here in front of you. And he says, uh, please don't do that. But I know a friend down the road. He said, you can go talk to him. That's fine. So I drove over there, and the uh, guy's got like two and a half fingers on one hand, and he's a doctor. He's missing like the tip of his thumb, this finger, uh, and part of this one. He's like, oh, you want me to cut it off? Sure, you don't need them all. <laughs> like, you're the man I need to see. He said, um, but let me, t let me give you some advice. He said, see my, he had a little nub here. He said, uh, if I could do it over, you get rid of that whole finger because that nub is going to get in the way. Your, in, your middle finger will take over as an index finger. I'm like, you're the professional here, you know. He cut the thing off that day. That afternoon, I went home and ran dogs. I just had it wrapped up, hooked the team up, and off I went. And I swear, it was the best thing I ever did that year. Not only because it alleviated the pain, but my attitude changed. Everything, it was just like, whew, all the stuff was finally gone. And... Um, I mean, today I still feel it's the best thing I did that year. What do you love about dogs? Oh, what don't I love? Dogs live in the moment. They don't live in the past. They don't look for the future. I go down and see my dogs. Do they say, you know, 
you had a bad day, I'll leave you alone. They're happy to see me. They don't judge me. They don't question me. They don't, um, you know, they, all they do is they offer unconditional love all the time. All the time. They're in the moment. And that is one thing that just keeps me motivated. I mean, as bad a day, there's no, I don't care if you have any money. I don't care at all about any of that stuff. Nothing. And that to me is just, I mean, if the, if the world could be like that, it'd be what a much better place, you know? And there's a lot to learn from, from dogs. Not just sled dogs, all dogs. And it's, um, it's just something to me that, you know, if I'm having a bad day or I had a, you know, whatever, I, I like to go hook up my team and go for a run. And no matter how bad it was, it's always great at the end. No matter what. And you could have the worst run in the world. The worst run in the world is better than the best day at work. <laughs> That's just me. How do you communicate with your dogs? Just like I am you. I talk to them all the time. People think they only know one syllable word, sit, stay, roll over, beg, fetch, whatever. It's only because that's the way you taught them. That's how you talk to them. If I'm talking to my dogs just like I am you in this tone of voice, and I'm telling them how good they are and how beautiful they did and they need to eat and, you know, hey, I had a bad day. You guys need to step it up. If I communicate and talk to them, they understand more. They understand conversations. Not just sentences. Um, you know, and I, I really know... And what, what makes you believe that? Well, again, when I, when I talk to them regularly and then I see things that they do... Um, all right, I got a couple of examples. Um, the very first year I had uh, won the Iditarod, I had already won the Quest uh, twice, and uh, I'd been in the top ten in the Iditarod twice. And uh, my leader, Larry... We get to a place called Cape Nome. It's 10 miles from uh, the finish line. Up on a hill, you're overlooking the whole valley down there. And, uh, you know, the whole time, I, I've been crying, laughing. I mean, all the emotions, you know. <clears throat> I got to Cape Nome, and I, I knew, I had already visualized how this is all going to play out when I got there. I'm going to run down the street, and the car's going to be going crazy, and as soon as I get to the, the finish line, I'm going to be swept away to an interview or whatever, and my dogs are going to go to the, to the dog yard, and I won't see them again for several hours. So I'm telling these guys, you know, this is going to be a crazy scenario when we get there. It's going to be, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to see and, and whatnot, and I said, you know, you guys deserve um, to recognition. The saying, I didn't do this. You guys did this. That was a fortunate passion on the back. You guys are the, the real heroes and the stars, and you won't get no credit. Maybe a little bit afterwards, but at the moment, you're just going to go swept off into the darkness, and I'm going to be getting all the hugs and kisses and praises. And I said, that ain't right. That's not right. We're a team. And I, I stopped. And I, I literally got down on my hands and knees, and I had ten, uh, nine dogs. And each one of them, from the wheel dogs to the leaders, I hugged them all and I looked them right in the eye and I cried again. I'm about to cry again. God dang it. And, uh, you know, I'm telling them, you know, so-and-so did good and they just, um, they're about to change my life. Uh, I made it all the way to the, uh, to the leaders and uh, 
I looked at Larry. I put my arm around him and I said, I'm going to point down there. I said, Larry, I know you know where we're at. I said, you've been here several times. He said, but I don't know if you realize uh, we're here first this time. And I'll never forget his expression. He looked over at me <laughs> like, duh, you know, yeah, Dad, I know exactly what's going on. He got kind of a little, his lip kind of quivered and like he was smiling at me. His chest puffed out. His head came up real high. His tail went straight in the air. And for 10 miles, he strutted down to the finish line, just like he was the man. We got to the podium, just like I knew we was going to. They brought my two leaders up. They put them on the podium. They put some yellow roses around their neck. They're taking pictures. That, to me, was the first time I realized he knew more than G and Ha and you know, things of, of that nature. He understood the things that I was telling him. Why does it make you emotional telling that story? Uh, those dogs in that race that year changed my life, literally. Um, you know, you could finish it in 20th every year and nobody would even know who I was. The fact that I had won the quest and the Iditarod in the same year, something that nobody's supposed to be able to do, you can't do that. Uh, you know, they, they have... They have never doubted me. They've always trusted me. They knew we could do this as much as I knew we could do it if we worked hard at it. And I, uh, you know, I say all the time, I owe, I owe my life to my dogs. Literally. I mean, I had dogs in my hospital room when there was no people there. Uh, you know, doctors said I couldn't have dogs in the hospital, but I did. Uh, you know, you're not supposed to do this, but I did. You're not supposed to live. You're not supposed to win that run. All these things... My dogs never doubted me one time. They stuck with me. They stood strong. They, they lived in the moment. And they, uh, you know, they've taught me a lot about living. Top Iditarod dogs can race up to, what, 125 miles a day, I think, for 10 straight that's, days? Yeah, that's pretty average, I suppose. Oh, sure. what, what sort of toll does that take on the dogs? Well, I mean, uh, if they're not trained and they're not... Um, I mean, even if they are trained. Absolutely. Uh, what kind of toll? If you train and race just the Iditarod every year, you could probably get a 10-year-old dog to know them in the first place. Um, they're that athletic. They're that... Um, they're, you know, it's just like a Kentucky Derby horse. I mean, you don't see Clydesdales out there doing it. These dogs are born, bred, and raised for this one event. And they're based, and they're bred and raised and, and whatnot from dogs all over the world from, and different kinds. So they're basically a mutt. But um, they're the kind of dogs that are not feeling good or have a broken toe or some, some ailment. And they're still barking and screaming to go. That's what they love to do more than anything. They love to run before they love to sleep or eat or get loved on. They want to run. What's involved with training them? Well, inconsistency. I never put them on a complete schedule. They're always guessing at what's going to happen. There's no, I mean, and to a degree, you feed them similar, um, similar combinations. Uh, one time they'll get it on top of their house. One time they'll get it in the bowl. One time it'll be frozen. One time it's 
nice and warm one, you know. I, I, I mix it up all the time. And, and just because it's 9 o'clock at night don't mean it's dinner time. Dinner time is when you eat, you know. So don't, we have a, we have a format that we go by. X amount of calories per day in any combination of ways. Uh, could be small. And I, and I do a lot of uh, small snacking when I'm racing. I don't believe that you're going to fill your tank up all the way and then drain it all the way before you fill it back up. If I can keep a half tank all the time, it's like a car, you're going to go for as long as you want. So I slowed them down a little bit. I fed them more often. And I continue to go the same speed and farther. I mean, there's nothing for me to go 16 hours on a run. I mean, most people are 16 hours. Are you kidding me? But every two hours, I give them a snack. I'm feeding that. I'm feeding that. I'm feeding that, you know. And if they're eating, you got energy, you got fuel, you can continue to go. How do you keep the dogs focused for that long or for any race for that matter? By starting them out early, doing the same exact thing. Um, I stop a lot. A lot of people don't like to stop. But by stopping, you're actually going farther and faster, in my opinion. And again, these guys want to go, you know, top speeds. I don't care if I'm going top speed because when you're sitting, I'm still going. Um, we start them at an early age, getting them used to the harness, and we free run them. Just let them run around the yard, chase the four-wheeler a couple miles. Um, first and foremost, it's got to be fun. I don't want them to think this is a job. It's not a job if you're having fun. You know, yeah, it's a little bit of work involved, but it's still fun. One of the greatest moments of my career was the day that my dogs got featured on the front page of the paper. Their individual pictures with their descriptions and their accomplishments. To me, that was, that was what I want. I mean, that was the, to, like I said, that, to me that was just the moment of all moments. Well, you know? What makes an incredible dog team? You well, know, I guess uh, there's a lot of things going to it. You know, for, for me, it was the, um, the satisfaction to be able to, to get a team that cannot communicate with, you know, really, to coincide with one another, to work as a team and still listen to me. You know, the, um, in 10 days, you're not going to have 10 good days. You know, every dog's not going to perform at his best level every single day. So... So-and-so is not really working today and not feeling really good. These other ones got to pick up the pace a little bit and make up, take up the slack, basically. Uh, and tomorrow's your turn. And tomorrow's your turn, you know. Um, they can't be picking on her because she's not really into it today. They can't be, you know, judgmental, so to speak. They, um, they have to be willing to dig deep. On their own, not because I asked them to do it. You know, you don't, uh, you know, these, these conditions that we go through, people are, oh, I can't believe you make a dog go do that. <laughs> and I laugh because, I mean, you can't make your poodle do something you don't want to do or it doesn't want to do. You think we make these dogs go out there in this kind of climate and, and perform at these levels and then get to the end and, and they're barking and screaming to go? How, you know, how did you make them do that? They want to. They want to do this. They love it. They, their pedigrees and their ancestors, you know, go back thousands of years, hundreds of years, trapping, hauling wood, um, you know, transportation. And, you know, those dogs didn't, uh, 
They didn't get the nutrition. They didn't get the, the garments that they're wearing today. They didn't get the love and affection. They were a tool, you know? Uh, these are my family members, and I treat them better than I do my kids. Zorro, uh, why did he mean so much to you? Uh, to me, that was the perfect specimen of a dog for I did Rob. At 70 pounds, 72, 3 pounds, uh, he was light on his feet. He ate everything. If you threw your shoe down there, you better grab it because he's going to take toe off of it. Um, perfect feet. Nice, tight, little dark feet. They don't spread out and get cuts and all the stuff that some of these dogs do now. Nice, thick fur. There's no dog blankets and, you know, sheath protectors and wrist wraps. And, I mean, half the dogs you see out there nowadays, you can't even tell if they're a dog or a uh, you know, a mannequin or something. I mean, they got so many garments on them. All you see is a couple of ears and a tail. I mean, that to me is a high-maintenance dog. I don't need a high-maintenance dog. I am a very high-maintenance person. I need extra sleep or I need extra food. or I don't need all these short-haired hound bird dogs. I mean, if you want a bird dog, go be a field trial retriever or something, you know? So Zorro to me was just that guy. He always had a positive attitude. He never doubted uh, the conditions. I mean, he never he never balked at anything. And and the one thing that I realized on my very first Iditarod was, uh, if I'm going to beat Jeff King or Martin Booz or any of these guys, I can't copy what they're doing. If I copy them, I'm already racing for second. If I I gotta come up with something a little different, and uh, that to me was a little different. That was a dog that nobody would look at, you know? Uh, 2008, while mushing the uh, All-Alaska Sweepstakes, uh, take it from there. Uh, we had, there was two other teams, basically, and myself that was racing for first, Mitch Seavey and Jeff King. And uh, 22 miles from the finish line is a place called uh, Safety Roadhouse. And it's... It's the place that all the locals from far away come. They have a few drinks, they get on their snow machines, and they ride back to Nome. And this trail is 40 feet wide, and it's as hard as this floor. Uh, I had a little bit of an issue with Zorro because he hadn't been trained adequately from the end of the quest. Or excuse me, from the, yeah, end of the quest to I did a rod, and then from I did a rod, he had, he had a few issues, and he wasn't quite keeping up. So I put him in a sled, and he was just going to ride. By now, I was going to be third. I knew that, which is fine. I had a great race. Uh, past Safety Roadhouse. A whole group of snow machiners there. Didn't think too much of it. But I'm always looking behind me, just, just checking the trail, see if anybody's coming. I'm aware of snow machines. See these two headlights coming at me. Well, this one is just, it's coming fast. And uh, yeah, this is a 40, 50 foot wide trail. Pretty soon, he's getting close enough where I shine my light right in his helmet. It's quite obvious he's going to hit me here in a second. And, well, just a split second before he did hit me, I just jumped as high as I could in the air. Because I felt, I don't know how fast he's going, but I know if he hits me and I jump in the air, I'll probably land on top of him which is exactly what happened. 
And you couldn't line it up better if it was sitting in this living room right now. He hit that um, sled at about 70 miles an hour. Of course, when he hit the sled, the whole team got, got like, drugged backwards and up underneath the sled, up underneath the snow machine. And when it came to a rest, my sled was on the side. The snow machine was wedged in it. One ski was through the sled bag. And now this other snow machine has finally come up. And, uh, and he's kind of trying to assist me. And the guy right here, he's still just standing there. And I'm, and I'm yelling at him, get your damn snow machine. I mean, I'm very polite at this moment. You're right, you're right. Uh, get your sled off, you know, snow machine off my sled. I got a dog in here. And he wouldn't budge. He wouldn't move. He was just like motionless. And me and this other guy, you know, we got the snow machine off. And I tipped the sled up and I got the dog out. And, oh, he looks fine. I mean, he, of course, he's distraught, and he's like, what just happened? All the other dogs, they're freaked out. They don't know. I mean, they just got ripped backwards. They had, who knows exactly what happened. I didn't see it all yeah. happen. We got them all lined out. I checked everybody. They weren't broken. They weren't, you know, nothing was really wrong other than just, you know, really skitched out. Well, now my attention turns to this guy. And me, I'm very polite. In this moment, I forgot about all that stuff. And I not only came up with names that everybody knows, I made some up. And I continued to yell and scream and spit and told him, if he's any kind of a man, you will find me at the finish line, you will make this right. So we get to the finish line, it's, I don't know what time in the morning, three or four in the morning, and it, uh, there's a huge crowd of people. And I wasn't going to ruin their day. These people came to see me. They came for a, you know, a reason, and I wasn't going to ruin their moment because of something that happened. And Zorro wasn't really, he wasn't acting himself. So I took him with me, and I put him in the house, and I put him in the kennel in front of the heater. You know, he ate and he drank, and but he, just, he just didn't act right. I went to sleep. About three hours later, I, just had, I sat up right in bed. I knew something was wrong. And, and his, he's laying in his kennel with his head on the floor, and his tongue all the way out. And I thought he was dead. I mean, he looked like it. And immediately, I didn't even, I, I don't even know how I knew, but I grabbed the phone and I just dialed the vet number. I'm like, Denny, you got to get up here. There's something wrong with my dog. He said, what happened? I said, well, nobody knew this, but I got hit by a snow machine last night. And, uh, and Zorro's, he looks dead. He, and um, she came right over and said, his dog needs to get medevac right away. Uh, it had busted his, busted a couple of ribs. He was bleeding from his spine, spleen. Basically, he had to be sent to, um, he had to be uh, medevac down to Seattle. Now, it's mandatory that you stay for the banquet to receive any rewards you might have won. Now, $100,000 winner take all is not exactly how it played out. Some of the people around Nome, uh, they got a queen contest, it's called, and they go and raise money themselves. Um, like you would raise money for second place and you for third and you for fourth, whatever. So there was actually five people that got paid. And uh, my third place earnings would have been a little over $10,000. But I got to be at the banquet to claim that. And uh, I called the race marshal. His name's Al Crane. I said, Al, I'm flying to Seattle tonight on the plane. And he says, you can't do that. Well, I'm telling you, I'm doing that. And uh, I don't really care what the consequences on this. And, uh, I have a family member in need. 
He needs me there, and I want to be with him. I'm flying to Seattle tonight. He said, well, you're going to forfeit your check. I said, you keep your check. <laughs> the dog means more to me than anything, and uh, I'm going. He said, are you sure you want to do this? I said, I'm telling you I'm doing it. I'm not, you know, I'm telling you that's what I'm doing. Just to let you know. I'm not going to be at the banquet. I'm sorry. And then uh, he said, well, I'll talk it over with the panel, and I'll get back to you. I said, Al, you don't get it. I'm on the plane here in a couple hours, and I am leaving. I won't be here tomorrow. Period. Talk to whoever you want. And he says, I don't recommend you do that. These people came here to see you. You owe it to the uh, people who put this race on. I said, I owe nothing to nobody except that dog. And he needs me, and I'm going to see him. He says, um, you know, by the time you get there, he's probably not going to be alive anyway. And I say, click. I ain't needing to hear not another word out of him. And uh, I got down there, you know, it took a while in the process to get to the, to the vet station there. And uh, this lady meets me at the door and she said, uh, you know, he's in there and uh, he's, he's on IVs and he hasn't moved. He, uh, you know, he's lifeless. And I said, I don't care. I want to see him. And I walked in and I seen him laying in the bottom of the cage there, you know. And I knelt down and I opened up the door and I put my hand on him. I said, I'm here, man. And his tail started doing this against the floor. And I said, he's going to live. And not only is he going to live, he's going to walk again. And they all looked at me like, how can you say that? And I said, trust me, this dog's going to walk again. And that dog, I swear to God, he looked at me and he's like, we're going to walk. Let's do this. What do you want to do? I mean, I, I never doubted him. And he never doubted me. And that was, I mean, I, I'm that way with all of them. I do not put them in a situation that's going to jeopardize their life, their future, or their career. And I'm going to be there if something does happen, you know? Uh, so, so when you were a young teenager, your parents got divorced, and that kind of caused you to go off the deep end. You started getting in a lot of trouble, arrested, et cetera. B before you stopped partying, what did an average day entail for you back then? I drank a lot because it was, uh, it was easy. It was free, or not free, but... How much did you drink? Depending on, uh, depending on the day. I mean, I could drink a bottle of whiskey every day, no problem. But then you add, you know, X amount of cocaine and, you know, that can make you drink a lot more. Is it true you were a commercial fisherman for, I think, like a little more than a decade before uh, you got into, uh, really got into dog mushing? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I read somewhere, you know, you were earning $100,000 a year annually, but then blowing it all on drugs, alcohol, and prostitutes. That's pretty uh, accurate. Really? That's pretty accurate. I started at 17 years old as a crab fisherman. By the time I was 18 years old, I had no bills, no responsibilities, making $100,000 a year or more. That just opened a lot of doors. And, um, you know, I'm with a bunch of uh, adults that had been experiencing lots of things at this point from all over the world. You know, come to California and try this. Come to here, try that. Here, check out this girl, 100 bucks, you know. I'm going to go make more. I mean, who cares? Thousand bucks, you know, it was nothing to go to a bar and spend a thousand bucks. Nothing. That was a pretty normal night. Regularly, regularly. Uh, people loved it when I came back to town, you know, parties on me, folks, you know, 
Is it true that uh, you and your ex-wife for a while were using her nine-year-old daughter as a designated driver? Yep. Sure was. Sure was. We'd prop a pillow up underneath her. I mean, her kids grew up pretty rough. I mean, she was she was involved with somebody before me, and I mean, I knew them, and I knew everything about her, and uh, you know, her kids unfortunately didn't have a dad in the picture, and we got together just as friends, you know. And one day, I remember uh, laying on the basement floor. My heart felt like it was coming out of my chest. I had two or three empty bottles of whiskey around me. And I remember just laying there, looking around. I'm like, "Wow, you, you are pathetic. Are you?" And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm. I don't know if I'm saying it out loud or just in my head. I had a little bit more uh, in my pocket. And I remember going up to her and saying, I'm going to do the rest okay. of this. Yep, I'm going to do all this right now. I'm going to do it at one time. And if I live through it, I'm done completely. Never again. But if I die, that's it all. I mean, it's probably better off. The world's better off without me. Like I said, I did that whole bag of right there. And I really did think I was going to die. I mean, I, I don't even know how to describe it. I, I couldn't... Uh, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't do anything. I was just, like I said, my heart was, my, my body was tingling. My, my heart was just racing. And when I came off of that, I sobered up. I used to smoke cigarettes. Uh, cold turkey. Nothing. Simple as that. I told her, we had, uh, we had this little place about an hour south of here. She was a bartender. I said, Either you're in or you're out. You're coming with me. We're leaving on June 2nd. You got one week to get all your stuff in order. Quit your job, whatever. You know, if you're coming, you're coming. On June 2nd, I'm leaving. And that was my birthday. And uh, she goes, well, where are we going? And I said, depends on how much gas money we have. But we know there ain't nothing that way. So we're heading south. Well, where? I said, I don't know. I have no idea. But we're going somewhere we don't know anybody. And we're going to start completely over. What were the living conditions like when you were almost homeless for a while? <laughs> um, we lived in a tent. And I, I got to give, you know, my ex some credit for this one. We built a house out of nothing, basically. Blue tarps was the outside walls. We had a couch that we'd set on, and we're overlooking the whole Cook Inlet Beach. Had a couch sitting there. We had our tent inside the blue tarp. That was our bedroom. We had a mattress in there. Uh, the girls had a little tent and their little mattress. And so we had our bedrooms inside of our blue tarp. And uh, every single day, we'd have to walk down to the beach and grab firewood to make a fire to be able to cook anything. We didn't have rainwater. We lived on the ocean. Um, Tanya uh, shaved the girls' heads because you couldn't, couldn't wash them, you know what I mean? Couldn't you couldn't buy shampoo afford shampoo. Stuff like, no. There was many times that, uh, that I would take my old truck down to the gas station and I would ask, and I met, you know, I got to know the guy at the end. Joe Browning was his name, great guy. Uh, hey, Joe, here's our old VCR. Can I get $5 worth of gas? No. And pretty soon I didn't have nothing left to give Joe. 
I got all this stuff and might as well have been in a pawn shop, you know? I remember the last time I went down there, I'm like, Joe, here's my driver's license. Let me fill my truck up this time. Because I was always getting like five or ten dollars worth of fuel. I'm gonna fill my truck up this time. And I promise by the time it's empty, I will have a job. And then I'll pay you back. You know? He's like, I know you will. Keep your license, you're gonna need it. And the very first paycheck, and I did. I got a paycheck. I finally talked to this guy, the rough cut lumberyard dude, and giving me five dollars an hour. And two fifty an hour worth of wood. I mean, that's pretty humbling, you know. But I chose. I that's what I wanted to do. I had to change my life, or I I would not be here today. I would have OD'd. I would have. Who knows what? I mean, I, I don't even want to think about what if what. How challenging has it been to stay clean? I haven't put myself in a position to to really. Um, and now I'm not gonna lie. I still like to drink, but I don't get drunk. I like to have a couple glasses of uh, Crown Royal here and there. I don't drink to get drunk like I did then. I don't care if I ever see a line of cocaine again. That was that was then. This is now. I have lots to lose. I'm a I'm not that guy that people think I was back then. And I'm still trying to prove to some people that I am different. Well, since we're kind of talking on the financial front, how, how does um, what a top musher can earn compared to the costs of maintaining a successful uh, I did a red team? <clears throat> well, the, the teams back then were that were you know winning and, and whatnot. Uh, I, I'm going to say they were spending fifty to hundred grand a year on average. Uh, these guys got fancy trucks and fancy clothes and all this matching gear and whatnot. I was literally going down to Salvation Army and getting, you know, $3 coats and right. a pair of old bunny boots. And, you know, it didn't matter to me what it looked like. My truck didn't make my team go any faster. My gear, as long as I stayed warm, I don't care if it matched, you know. I was, I was honestly, the laughing stock of the sport when I entered the Iditarod. I mean, who is this guy? Look what he's driving and what is this, you know? I didn't care. It wasn't about that. It was about me and looking for, you know, setting a goal and making it happen. And accepting that there was going to be obstacles to overcome. And every day is an obstacle. I mean, every day that I'm around here, there's some obstacle to overcome. This is just another one of them. You know, and that was my mentality then. I had a lot of energy and a lot of uh, something stored up. I had to do something with it. I get, I've never been the guy to sit down behind a desk and, you know, sit on the phone or whatever. And however it happens, I, I've, I've always had the, the mentality, no, you know, no matter what it takes, get the job done and don't stress about it because it's inevitably going to work out. Maybe not right now, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually things are going to work out. How, how hard is it to make it a full-time job? Racing? Uh, financially. Um, I've done as good as anybody in this sport, and I'm still broke. I don't, I don't have sponsors. I mean, I've had a, I had dog food sponsor for a little while, and I got a clothing company that gives me some garments. Everything else is, um, I mean, I don't have really a cash sponsor. I have one really small sponsor compared to what I need. But uh, all of my race earnings has done this. Now, I started in 2005 when the Yukon Quest. 
13 years of commercial fishing, I apparently there was some uncle named Sam that needed paid for some stuff. Well, I don't know this uncle, so why the hell do I need to pay him? And I uh, didn't know exactly the consequences of those actions. So at the end of the Yukon Quest, I made $30,000. I took it. For what? Apparently I owed Uncle Sam, you know. Oh, yeah, I heard about that guy. So I uh, came in seventh and I did arrive. Made like 50, I don't know, 40 grand or something. Put it in the bank. I'm paying all the time. I'm rich. 40 grand at once? Are you kidding me? I was, uh, let's see, where was I going? I was going, I was heading somewhere in the vehicle. Stopped, put gas in. My card was declined. That's not right. I just put 40 grand in the bank the other day. Called the bank. Yeah, um, your bank account's been seized. Uh, okay, what for now, you know? Um, Make a long story short, back when I was uh, 21, I think it was, a drunken party, and uh, apparently I got this girl pregnant. And, uh, well, I shouldn't say apparently, I did. I knew uh, at the time, I was in that town all the time. We got in a big fight. She told me it was somebody else's, blah, blah, blah. I just blew it off. I didn't, you know. So now all of a sudden I make some money. I'm coming somewhere. And now she. 16 years old. I need to go down and take a paternity test. Sure, I don't have nothing to hide, you know. Lo and behold, my kid. Now I owe 16 years of back child support at ever much he wants. It was that part grand, too. And um, yeah, so it was that kind of stuff leading up till 2007. I'd done great. Racing. How much, I still no how much did not having insurance when you got diagnosed with cancer hurt you financially? Ridiculous. Uh, it's around 700 grand. And it's not done. It's not over, you know. It's been about, yeah, it's been about 700 grand. Now, some of that got uh, taken care of through Social Security disability. So, yeah, I mean, I, I still today have doctor bills from then. I, there's one doctor, I owe her five grand, and I, don't, I never even met the lady. She was in the building somewhere when I was doing hyperbaric treatments. I'll, I'll never be out of debt with the doctors. Uh, in the remaining moments I have with you, I want to talk to you just about family and getting into uh, the, the, the sport. Uh, your dad co-founded the I, I Did a Ride and won the race. Your half-brother won the race. Your mother was seven months pregnant with you when she won a, a, a dog uh, mushing race. Yep. Um, when, when you finished the I Did a Rod for the first time, your dad was crying, hugging you. Describe what, what that was like. Well, the fact that, um, you know, the fact that I got my dad's attention in something that I really felt he was sincere about was enough for me, you know? That, that was, I wanted to make my parents proud. Uh, I really disappointed them for many years. And it was something that I needed to do for myself to show them that I was a changed person, that I was trying to do something that they could relate to, that they knew what kind of time and commitment and, and uh, focus you had to do to just even get to the finish line. It's, 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 the hardest part is getting to the starting line. The rest is easy. 
And when he said he was proud, uh, that was, I mean, that, that was it. That was a deciding fact. I'm going to do this the rest of my life, you know. He just said, I mean, I made him proud. And that was something that I had never heard him say to me before. And um, I'll never forget it. I mean, he was crying, saying he was proud of me, not disgusted or embarrassed. That's all I needed. How would you describe the feeling of coming down Main Street to win your first Iditarod? The feeling I got the rush when I come down Front Street and and my my body feels like it's asleep, it's tingly, and the, the rush, the blood. Um, I'm choked up. I'm, I want to cry and laugh at the same time. I wanted to, <clears throat> you know, I just wanted to tell the people, all the doubters, like, in your face, look at this, you know? Doctors that said I couldn't do it. All these people, I just felt that... The world was mine all of a sudden. This is the one moment that you can't take away from me. You, I mean, no matter what happens next year, I will always be the 2007 I did at Rod Champ. Thanks for sharing your story. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to my interview with Lance Mackey. To see more of our time in Alaska, including hanging with the animals and my attempt at dog mushing, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.